All right. Well, very good. Well, let's uh, look at verse 5 today. Verse 5. As we begin, I'd, I'd like us to consider a small group of people sitting in a, in a living room, and if, if we could, try to picture them. Uh, they're, they're a different group of people than you would normally see together. They would not normally be together in this setting. The 15 to 20 of them, the walls of this room are unkempt, dirty, dirty floor. There's a small table, which a small meal is provided that would not be enough for everyone, but they're all delighted to be there because they're not usually welcome in other places. They are the marginalized, ostracized of society. One is a despised man because of his associations. He's bartered with the wrong people, ties in his community with organized crime of sorts, illegal in most eyes, but using power to abuse. And he's there with two others, and normally not welcomed, but they are at the table welcome. He informs against his own people, squeezes them dry till they have nothing. Another is an elderly woman. She's used to being overlooked because she has nothing, extremely poor, destitute, She has a disability that keeps others from her because they know that she has nothing and whatever she asks, she'll be always asking from them. They're tired of helping her. They want nothing to do with her, but now she's smiling because she's being fed. The same table is a lady who, according to the world's observations, is very loose. And if you would ask others in town, she has a history as a prostitute. Another one has a disease that would keep others from coming close to him. Another young man is an outcast, kicked out of his family because of decisions he made just as a teenager. Weighed down with guilt. Not accepted by others. But he's brought to the table. There are several others of the same class. They've gathered around a new teacher. The room has a dirty floor. It's a dirt floor. Limestone walls. It smells a little because of the crowded nature in the small room. And we know they've gathered around who? Yeshua. Yeshua. Here's someone that has not just welcomed them to the table, but he's asked them to leave their lifestyle and follow him. And some of them have. Across the street is another group, the pastors of the day, the religious leaders. And they are just overwhelmed with the inappropriateness of this new rabbi that he would eat with such people. They are wealthy. They are powerful. They are the inside track of society pushing others away, disdainfully looking down on the poor, the blind, the sick. It happened while he was reclining at the table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Hearing this, 
Jesus said to them, it's not those who are healthy that need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not call the righteous, but sinners. God is not partial. Jesus will over and over confront who? The Pharisee in his ministry. He will will confront the judgmental. Perhaps one of those individuals was the author of our book. We know he was a leading Pharisee as a young man and would have no doubt looked down on this rabbi welcoming these people. They were outcasts. They would make him unclean. He definitely couldn't eat with them. What a different tune we come to in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Beautiful, beautiful picture we find here. As this Saul becomes Paul and preaches the beautiful impartiality of God. And actually, those two classes of people that Jesus talks about really pictures Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. Okay, so as we get to verse 5, verse 5 is a little bit of a hinge. So I've really been trying to digest. In fact, last week we did Song of Solomon in part because I really I just could not get chapter 2 all digested at time. Uh, so Thursday we had to switch. But um, it is a, an amazing passage, but it's one we need to take carefully. We need to take carefully. So I'm just going to take a moment to bring us to where we need to be, and then we'll dive deep into verse 5. But we're going to be able to take verses 6 through 11 correctly if we, if we survey the few acres of these chapters, and then we'll look at the actual trees. Okay, so we've got to get a bird's eye view of what's going on to really understand it well. But that's going to take your concentration, okay? So be patient with me as we try to really lay out where we've been and where we're headed. We'll do the review quickly, okay? Review quickly, getting up to chapter 2 with just seven points and... And so you see that in your notes, um, these, these seven points. First of all, God is helping us all understand our need for the gospel. That's what chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20 is about. Okay? So God is helping us understand all of our need of the gospel. Anyway, Romans 1, Romans 2, but really we're headed all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. The necessity of the gospel for all of us, okay? Um, after the, the prologue, that's really right where he heads, and, and we see some repeated ideas, but the, the first aspect of that is chapter 1. There's this indictment uh, with the sinner, and, and we're finding that the sinner is left with no excuse. So when Jesus sits down with those folks, he's not saying, you're okay where you are. He's calling them to repent too. He's not saying, listen, stay exactly how you are, taking advantage of people and being you know, cruel. No, he, he's calling everyone to repentance. And that's what all chapter 1 is about. And we won't go back through that, but you know the kind of the downgrade of stages of rejecting God's revelation that turns us over to a depraved mind where we think incorrectly about who God is and what he has given as telling us what to do. And that leaves us without excuse, right? So 
the, the sinner, number four, the sinner is left without excuse, right? The indictment starts with the sinner, chapter one, and, and it leaves us all without excuse. And that's what he's, that's what he's doing. He's going to leave the, the sinner without excuse, and then chapter two, he's going to leave the moral person without excuse. But he's making us all shut our mouths. I, I, there's no way that I have a case before God. So the sinner is left without excuse. Indictment follows and flows from that to the moral. And that's kind of where we're headed now in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, 8, we find uh, going from the, the, the sinner now to the moral person. And, and right from the beginning, he says, therefore, you have what? No excuse. Right? Those of you who now are being judgmental toward others, right? And he's signaling the Pharisees out there looking at Jesus eating with the sinners and tax collectors. He's like, what? no, this is for you too. And I do feel like this is, the, as I've said before, the majority of people in Queens, just a lot of decent people with very religious and very moral. A lot of people are born in upstanding families that have all of these religious traditions that they've followed. And boy, I feel like I'm spiritual from a child. I hear that all the time as I talk to people in Queens. And it may be that they're Muslim or Buddhist or Jewish or just a, a even Christian heritage. I was born Roman Catholic or I was born Orthodox. But he's going to pick on those folks. right? Maybe the, I don't know, 1.800, 1.8 million, one, whatever, in Queens. You have no excuse. And who is he specifically talking about? Those who are passing judgment on others. So here we enter a time where God is, is showing that his wrath and his judgment falls on all moral people. And, and the way we're going to kind of divide it is verses 1 through 16 of chapter 2 is his judgment falling on the legalist. And then... Verses 17 to the end of the chapters at 29, God's judgment falls on the Jewish person. And, and look at there in verse 17. He, he refers to himself. Listen, this is for Jewish people as well. Both for those who are religious and legalistic, and, and then specifically those who would say, but I have the law to fall back on, the Mosaic law. All right, so... That's where we're headed. So, in your notes there, God is helping all understand that our need for, the, need for the gospel. Two, we are going to be left with no excuse. Three, the indictment starts with the sinner, chapter one. The sinner is left without excuse. Indictment flows over to the moral person. The moral is left without excuse, chapter two. Uh, and then we'll all fall under God's judgment and wrath because we are all without excuse. And that's where he's headed. Okay, so look at chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. No one has an excuse. Everyone's mouth is closed. All the world becomes accountable to God. Verse 22, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for the law becomes the knowledge of sin. So he's just showing us no one can be justified by the works of the law, by your good behavior. That will not make you right before God. And then verse 21 is where we get the, the answer. Verse three, Chapter 3, verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God is given to us. Okay, And we'll, we'll get there. 
But we, it's so help, chapter 2 is so helpful. We have to understand the nature of this compared to works, good works, and, and legalism versus moralism versus Judaism. I would say rabbinic Judaism. Um, and so all of that will kind of unfold as we walk through chapter 2. Chapter 2. Well, now let's sink into chapter 2. So just give me one more minute, okay? Uh, as, we, as we look at where we've been in chapter 2, if you remember, he's handled two questions to help the moral person shut their mouths. Okay, he's, he's giving rhetorical questions to the moral person saying, do you think this? Do you think this? And he's showing them that's improper thinking. Okay, so the first question is... Uh, you're, you're a disparaging others question. Why do you misjudge yourself by judging others? And so often if you find yourself judging everyone around you saying, I'm going to be okay with God, that, like, that's the only way out. Well, I hope I'm judged on the curve because I'm doing okay. Uh, but that what you're doing is you're disparaging others. Okay, so that's what the first thing Paul says. If you're passing judgment, you know, you're, you're judging others, but you're also going to be judged. Just because you're more or less advanced, that doesn't mean that your good works or bad works are excused. All of us will be judged, okay? The second question would be despising God's kindness question. Do you think lightly of God's forbearance and kindness? And, and what he's saying there is not, are you hoping to be great on the curve and you're just finding fault with others so you think God's going to accept you because others are worse than you. He's saying, are you thinking improperly about God's kindness? And the idea would be there that, well, God's just going to be so kind that He's going to sweep my sin under the rug. Okay, so that's the second idea. He says, do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance? As if God's kindness and His patience to me mean I can continue to live in my sin. No, he's saying that's what draws you to repentance. Big idea as we move forward. Because it's a heart issue. It's not a works issue. Is your heart repenting because of the grace and kindness of God? Okay. That's question two. And really what he's going down to after the two questions, verses one through four, verse five finishes up the questions and and brings in the primary idea of the rest of the chapter. And that is this. One conclusion. God's judgment is righteous. So you have two questions and one conclusion. And really, all of chapter 2, verses 5 and following are all about that, what we sang about today. God is impartial. He's impartial. No matter what law code you have, He's impartial. We'll all be judged. Okay? So that's where we're headed. Anybody lost? I know we looked at a lot of verses there. Now we'll walk back through it carefully, okay? Okay? And, and verse by verse, we'll go through the rest of chapter 2. But what I really want to do then is deal with the words. Okay, I, I love, I just heard this probably when I was a teenager, John MacArthur preaching, and, and he said, unlocking an ocean of God's truth one drop of it at a time. That's a wonderful picture. Right? It's an ocean of truth, and so we need to look at the ocean. But you know what? We want every drop of these words to hit us. And sink into our soul and be a blessing to our soul and water the ground of our soul. Okay? So we don't want to skip over these words and just say, okay, we looked at them, so now we're done. We want to now sink our feet deep into the words. Okay? So let's look at verse 5 here. 
There's four questions that help us walk through verse 5. What are they saving up? Why are they saving it up? When is it going to be revealed? And really, who is going to receive this storing up? Okay, so question one, why are they saving it up? What are they saving up? What is this saving in verse 5? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, what are you storing up? Wrath. Oh boy. That is not good. What are they saving up? First of all, they are saving up wrath. You are storing up wrath for yourself. Um, This is a sobering point. Uh, It's a sobering picture. You're storing up. The word is treasuring up. I like the King James Version translation here where it says, treasureth up. Are are you treasuring up? You're treasuring something up that you shouldn't want to treasure up. Uh, Jesus uses this word where he says, do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy. Lay up treasures in heaven. You can lay up treasures in heaven. You know what else you can lay up for yourself? What does he say? You can treasure up something much worse. You can treasure up wrath. You can treasure up wrath. That word treasure is linked to verse 4. So you look in your Bible there. Verse 4, he says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? So you have all the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience ready to be poured out through the gospel on all of you. But if you don't repent, if that doesn't lead you to repent, instead of rejecting those riches, this is what you're treasuring up. You see what he's saying? You either have the riches of the gospel of God through Jesus Christ placed upon you, or if you're not in that category, then you're treasuring up something else. Something scary. You're storing up. What does he say? Storing up for yourself? Wrath. Wrath. Right? The picture is someone, it's a, a repeated, constant thing. It's like you're saving for retirement. Every month or every year, you put 20 bucks in there. Right? No. Every day, you're putting a little bit aside, treasuring up, waiting, 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 waiting. It's, this is what you're doing with, with wrath for yourself. It's like, hey, it's, it's an interesting picture. We wouldn't think that is positive. You, today, if you're not responding to the message of Romans chapter 2, verse 5, you're in this category. You're treasuring up something. You're treasuring up wrath. You're storing up wrath. This is what you're for yourself in your, what is it called, portfolio. What you have down for eternity is that you've been treasuring up wrath for yourself. The word wrath comes up ten times in the book of Romans. Uh, This is the second time it comes up. It has to do with anger, right? God's anger at sin. The original verb of wrath denotes an inner commotion. can be uh, what describes fruit or vegetables where there's there's this um, inner movings as it rots, right? The, the idea that there's something going on inside there. And, and you kind of feel that sometimes when you're angry. 
Like there's this inner turmoil and you're trying to get a hold of it and, and make sure that you channel that inner turmoil in a positive way. And you can do that, right? Anger is given to God by God to help you get that lug nut off. It's like there's this... And then God says, okay, boom, there's the anger and you strip the lug nut. No, you, there, you use it positively. But we often see it used in a negative way because someone blows up at a time when they should not blow up. I get the picture of, of, a, of a Coke can, right? There's, you shake it and there's, this, there's just this inner turmoil, you know, that's just ready to explode. Um, God, God is spoken of as having anger. You're storing up anger for yourself, for yourself from God. That is, that is the idea here. Now, it would be helpful in your Bible if you put down the previous time, the first time that's used, actually comes in the main passage of Romans. So, look in your Bible at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and following. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So right from the beginning he's saying, listen, you need the gospel because the wrath of God is coming upon sinners. And now you need the gospel because the wrath of God is coming upon moral people. You are, if you reject the gospel and the kindness of God doesn't lead you to repentance, you're continuing to store up the same idea of wrath. And it's not, it's not that God is capricious. It's not that He will um, finally bubble up and explode. It's, it's measured, it's, it is just, and it's right to have that anger. So let me just ask briefly, do you believe this about God? I would say, have you read the Bible? If you've never read the Bible, then you might not believe this about God, and you may have built up a God in your own likeness that you, that you like better. But you read from the beginning pages, we just considered this morning, that there's anger at the sin in the garden with Adam and Eve. There's anger at Cain. There's anger at the world in the time of Noah, so God sends a flood. There's anger at the United Nations that rose up against God at the Tower of Babel and he creates international chaos. There's anger at the Egyptians for oppressing the Israelites. There's anger at the Israelites for grumbling and complaining against God. There is a sacrificial system developed in the law that demonstrates God's anger at sin and the, the need to constantly offer blood sacrifice. In Leviticus, in our Bible reading, even I think it was this morning or yesterday morning, uh, just struck by Moses saying in Leviticus, or God saying, that the fire cannot go out at the altar. The idea that it's always burning. There's always this burning anger that sacrifice needs to be made. And so the Bible teaches, I am not born spiritual. I'm not born because of my family or because of my lineage or because my dad was a pastor in a good standing with God. 
In fact, Ephesians 2.3 says, Among them we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh and were by nature children of wrath. Anger. The same word. I'm born, right? We love our little ones, but they're all born in that state. You can be Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Orthodox Jewish, Baptist, all of you are born, no matter what family you're born in, you're actually born in that state. And that's where he's getting us. You cannot bring before the pearly gate, yeah, but my mom and dad did this. No, no, that does nothing. There's no partiality based on human lineage, ethnicity, what you, right, your, your gifts or talents or wealth, none of that does you good. God's anger is burning toward all of us. And so we, right, we just sing Psalm 1 in January. The last three verses have to do with this. The last three verses of Psalm 2 have to do with this. Psalm 1, Psalm 2, same thing. Again, it's not something we sing about a lot. That's why we should sing the Psalms. But it's just all throughout the Bible. And so he says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Do homage, right? Believe in Jesus. David's saying that in Psalm 2, the gospel. You have to believe the Son or you'll be angry and you'll perish in the way. And so the self-righteous is self-deceived, thinking that their goodness will outweigh their badness. No, no. Jesus tells them, you make them twice a child of hell as yourself, as you focus on the religious rituals. There is an anger from God that must be dealt with. And it's either dealt with us in an eternal way after life, or it's dealt with us at the cross, where God sends His eternal Lamb, the Son of God, to take an eternal punishment. No human being can do that. You need an eternal God-man to be able to die, and to be able to die in eternal anger. So we call this propitiation. It's a important term where, where God's wrath is kindled and placed upon the sun. He becomes the lightning rod that takes the lightning wrath of God that I can go free. The blood is applied by faith to the doorpost of my heart, then the wrath from the death angel will pass over me, whether I'm Egyptian or Jewish. The death angel was coming on every household. And I had to apply the blood the same way today. The blood must be applied no matter what way you were born. There's no partiality with God. We'd like to make up a God in our own likeness that says, well, everything's okay, but no, anger must be dealt with. And it's dealt with at the cross. Let's keep moving. The second question here, why are they saving it up? Why are they saving it up? You're storing up wrath because of what? Verse 5, but because of your... Heart. Yeah, your stubbornness and unrepentant heart. Why are they saving this up? They're saving it up because their heart condition. Um, you have a stubborn heart. You have an unrepentant heart. He's talking about everyone. We have, if we haven't responded in faith and repentance to the gospel, then we have a stubborn heart. The word stubborn there is simply hard. Uh, you have this hard heart. Um, 
unresponsive, right? When physical arteries become stiff and hard, they block the heart, and it can be a very bad problem, right? Hardening of the arteries. Um, spiritually, it's the same. If you have a hard heart, not receptive to God's message of the gospel, if you refuse His loving kindness and patience and continue to uh, push that aside, then, then your heart is hard. You have a stone heart. Ezekiel prophesies about a time where God will give them a heart of flesh. A new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. 19. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit. I will put within you, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. We need a soft heart responding to God's message. Continue on with the EKG, right? We need a soft heart, but we also need a repentant heart. They had an unrepentant heart, a hard heart and an unrepentant heart. Verse 4 says they reject God's kindness that should lead them to repentance. But if you continue in unrepentant, you have an unrepentant heart. We considered that word briefly when we looked at that. The idea of repentance is specifically to change. Is the word change in the word mind. There's a change of mind about myself and my condition before God that results in fruit of a changed action. It's a new nature. And so God calls us to repent. He commands us to repent. Change your idea that you can make your own way before God. That your spiritual longings at the beginning of life are enough. No, no, nothing. All of us have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We need the Lamb of God to take away the sin of our soul. And so his wrath will be placed on us that we're treasuring up or placed upon the Son at the cross. But if you continue to reject that message, reject that message in self-righteousness or desiring your sin, both of those are unrepentance. Then you have an unrepentant and an unbelieving heart. And God is patient and God is patient and God is patient and God is patient, but eventually the wrath will come. And that's the, the next one. I do see, just real quick here, I just, it's an amazing picture um, because I, I see this young man a little later and, and this word comes out, this idea of hard heart. Um, the, the young Saul has grown a little bit in prestige and has some sway and some responsibility and he hears another young man, Stephen, preaching the gospel. Preaching actually to the whole Sanhedrin. All the religious leaders of that day would be similar to our Senate, but all of them very religious, very uh, high position. And yet Stephen is going to confront all of them. And he ends his sermon with this. You are stiff-necked, hard-hearted, uncircumcised in heart, Meaning you're Jewish in flesh, but you, you have not had the heart change. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit just as your fathers did. And what happens? They hear that hard-hearted and their heart does not respond in faith and repentance. They cry out with one voice, they cover their ears, and they rush at Stephen with one impulse. 
They drive him out of the city and they begin stoning him with stones. And Stephen looks up and, and dies as he's being pelted to death with stones by the authority of the author of Romans chapter 2. He knows the stickiness of feeling. He felt like he was right with God. Feeling you are right with God means nothing. Throw that away. Satan loves to fool us with feelings. The only right standing you can have by God is faith in Jesus Christ that he's earned. Saul knew that as Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And he looked to Jesus and was saved, but he was very religious, felt very good about himself. That meant nothing. He says, I look at all of my, my Philippians 2, he says, I looked at all of my pedigree. I was a tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he says, it was just off-scour, it's dung, it's worthless. Because he learned to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. When is it going to be revealed the heart condition. This is why it's tricky, because Satan can make you feel good right until death. This is why it's tricky. When is it going to be real? It may not be revealed in this life. And sometimes we think that my circumstances are what tell whether I'm approved by God or not. And if I you know, come through a difficult time with relationships, difficult time financially, or difficult time physically, then all of a sudden God doesn't like me. But if everything's going okay, God likes me. That's not what the Bible teaches. When is God's anger revealed? Right? Often he uses chastening to bring us close to him as his children. I realize that. That's, that's true. But, but often some very wealthy, fine people are just have no clue about the gospel. Right? So this will be revealed in the future, in the day of wrath. Revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's when this will be revealed. And that's why Peter deals with this in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, a lot of you feel like God's judgment isn't coming because he's patient. 2 Peter 3 verse 7, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one facet escape your notice, beloved, that the Lord one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like one day. And, and so the Lord is not slow about his promise as some keep slowness and is patient toward you, not wanting for anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. He wants everybody to embrace the gospel. But that doesn't mean that his anger is not there. We may not be able to conceive of this, but God so loves all of you and all the world, and he also has anger at all of our sin at the same time. He has anger that must be poured out, and yet love that pours himself out on the cross. And allows himself to be our scapegoat. And so this day of judgment, Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15, describe it. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were open and another book was open, which is the book of life. And they're judged according to the things written in the books, according to their deeds. If anyone was not found in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. This word revelation is our word apocalypse. The word we get our word apocalypse. This revelation of the wrath of God. And so you see in, in all those different 
movies and writing the idea of apocalypse, the apocalypse, it's, it's because he's from the Bible. We have a sense that judgment day is coming. God's wrath is patient, is patient, is patient, is patient, but those who he gave snow to and still cursed his name, that does not mean that they will escape. Those who continue to reject the gospel and try to find their own way through religious rituals and works will not escape. Spurgeon said it this way, Oh, sirs, if you would, if you would not see the angry face of Jesus, Jesus was the Passover lamb and he was also the, the angel of death. Oh, sirs, if you would not behold the lightning flashing from his eyes, you read about in Revelation. Lightning in his eyes. Hear the thunder of his mouth in the day when he judges the fearful and the unbelieving and the hypocrite, the self-righteous and the unrighteous. If you would not have your portion in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, cry this day, right now, mightily to God, Lord, hold me fast, keep me, keep me. Believe the gospel even now. Because there is a day of judgment. That third point there is very important though. It's a, a day of judgment that is according to the gospel. It's the day of wrath, it's the day of judgment, but it's according to the gospel. And you see that in verse 16. We really need to look at that, but um, verse 16 of Romans chapter 2, he says, uh, and that this is all the end of the same paragraph. So it's not made, like we're made to read it in one sitting. Look at verse 16 of chapter 2. On the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. The nature of the judgment is the gospel. Have you responded to the gospel message in faith and repentance that does work its way out and a changed life. So it's judgment according to the gospel, and we'll get to that as we continue on. Let me just say, this is between you and God. Again, this is not about being religious. This is not about you and me. I just want you to think about it, okay? No one else is going to talk to you about this. And I'm a preacher of the gospel. I, I, am, I am bound by conscience and by heart and by love for you to not hide this, but to bring it very clearly before you. Just think about yourself. You appear before the judgment. There you are before your Creator. What are you going to say? Let me encourage you not to give the rhetorical questions of, but aren't you kind? He said, I'm kind enough to bring a substitute. Did you receive the forgiveness through my substitute? Or I did better than others? Look at all the good stuff I did. No, the only thing that will escape is... I've trusted in Jesus in my place. He was perfect. He had no sin nature. He was born of a virgin. He had no sin nature. He had no sin. And he offered his life in my stead. Father, please bring me into your kingdom. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of my kingdom. That's what it'll be based on the works of the Lamb. Embrace this truth and repent. Yes, I repent of my self-righteousness. I repent of my sin Oh God, I don't want any of that life. Help me to live your life. That is the gospel spirit. Well, who is going to receive this wrath? And we'll be done here. Number, number four, who is going to receive? Each person according to his deeds. Each person. 
And what's really fascinating here, we don't have time for it, but I've just really enjoyed going through the rest of this passage, and it's going to be helpful for us. This is what I got stuck on. It just really, really worked before the Lord on this. But there's a beautiful chiasm, which is a, a really interesting way to look at the text. But what, he, what he's saying is everyone needs this. And this is clear because of how he continues to develop, develop the thought. In verses 6 through 11. Let's see here, I think I have it. Yeah. I do not. I guess that didn't save. We'll look at it next week. But actually, look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Who will render to each person according to his deeds. Verse 11 is the end of the paragraph. He says, There is no partiality with God. So his whole point of this bringing to judgment is to tell us that God's judgment is just. He's not going to be partial in any way. All of us need the gospel. God is impartial, completely impartial. We all need Jesus. No matter who you are, no matter your history, no matter your ethnicity, God's judgment is impartial. And that's his big point of verses 6 through 11. Who will render to each person according to his deeds, for there is no partiality with God. This is from a article nasdaq.com rich folks tend to get the star treatment in shops and services it's pretty clear-cut why this is nathan jacobs researcher in the swanky boutiques they're not just customers they're almost like guests of honor staff will know them maybe even greet them by name roll out the red carpet with stuff like private showings or a first look at the latest collection so he goes through seven different things that very wealthy receive um, preferential treatment, exclusive concierge services. I get that all the time. No. <laughs> Customized financial products, complimentary perks, reservation priority. You call at the restaurant, oh, we have your table. Attention, more attention being paid. Legal leverage. Businesses bending the rules to help. You know what is not on that list? The judgment of God. The judgment of God, whether you are homeless or you have five of the nicest mansions in the world, there's no hiding from God. And the point is, so we all need to be made right with Him through the Gospel. Do not rely on how you're born, what you would check for ethnicity, what you would check for religion, what you would check for right, socioeconomic categories. The only thing that makes us right with God is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. We don't have time. You see the application there. Let's, let's mirror God, okay, in this, in not giving preferential treatment to others based on status or wealth or ethnicity or power or influence. By God's grace as a church, let's treat another one with the same kindness and respect and love no matter who the person is. It is righteous to follow God in impartiality. But the most important application would be receive God through the gospel. Right? Receive God's gospel today. Let's pray. I'll be standing in the back, back table if you would like to pray with someone. But let me encourage all of you to just consider these truths. And um, even now, in the quietness of this moment, put yourself there.
I, I realize it's a hard topic, but it's got to bridge it and just receive the gospel message that Jesus is perfect in your place and died in your place. By faith, embrace that. If you have never asked him for the forgiveness based on the cross, ask him right now. He's listening to you. And he loves to hear your prayer. Just say, Lord Jesus, save me. Save me. And that one went home justified, declared to be right with God. The other one was still grabbing onto their legalism. So let me encourage you to grab onto the cross.